And beloved, what's uh, in a title? What's in a name? What's in a title? What's in an office? When we think of titles, when we think of offices, sometimes they're interchangeable. We can think in the corporate world, the different CXOs, uh, for example, the chief executive officer, information officer, financial officer, operating officer, uh, security officer, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Um, in terms of offices, we can think of in the United States of America, president, governor, senator, representative, mayor, and the list can go on. In Israel, in the Old Testament, under the old covenant that God had put in place with the nation of Israel, there were three offices. There was prophet, king, and priest. The prophet brought God's truth to man. The king brought God's throne to man. The priest brought man's transgression to God. The prophet was the steward of the word of God. The king was the steward of the rule of God. The king and or the prophet and the king represented God before man. The priest represented man before God. Uh, we are introduced to the Son of God. We are introduced to Jesus Christ in the mighty epistle of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where the author brings out the fact, the focus in the first few verses of Hebrews is prophet, but he also brings out Jesus, the Son of God, in the office of king and of priest. Hebrews 1, 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the final word. He is the final prophet, verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And then here at the end of verse 3, he talks about his function as priest and as king. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, priest and king. Beloved, in Hebrews, Jesus is the prophet who speaks finally. He is the king who rules triumphantly. And he is the priest who saves vicariously. A central theme of Hebrews is to show the absolute superiority and the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is vastly, infinitely superior to the old prophets. He is superior, he picks it up in the beginning of chapter 1 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 2 showing that Jesus is superior to the angels. In chapters 3 and 4, the author tells the audience, God tells us that Jesus is superior to Moses and Joshua. Uh, because of his sin, Moses wasn't even able to enter into the land of promise and enter the physical rest that God had promised the nation of Israel, though Joshua did lead the nation into the promised land of rest. They did not realize the ultimate Sabbath rest that God intends for them. And what we find ourselves now in Hebrews chapter 7 is the very nerve center of the book of Hebrews, where the author began back in chapter 4, verse 14, 
to bring out to us, to drive home the point that Jesus is the perfect and final high priest. And as such, he is superior to both Levi and to Aaron. The new covenant priesthood of Jesus is infinitely superior to the old covenant priesthood of Levi and of Aaron. This is introduced to us by a shadowy figure from the Old Testament, a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears in Hebrews 7 out of the mist of the past. This man of mystery appeared originally in Genesis chapter 14 as if from nowhere. He appears out of the blue for three verses and then disappears back into the blue, we could say. And Those three verses in Genesis 14, Moses wrote those, and then for a thousand years, well, a thousand years after the actual meeting of Abraham and Melchizedek, some uh, 400 years after Moses wrote this, Melchizedek vanishes from the pages of history. Then he reappears 1,000 years after the meeting in one verse and one psalm penned by King David, only to again vanish for another thousand years before he's picked up and mentioned eight times in three chapters here in Hebrews, Hebrews 5 through 7. Beloved, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 is the author's exposition of Genesis 14, 18 through 20. I have the blessing to exposit a divine exposition from God. That is what we are looking at here. And the situation was, back in Genesis 14, Abraham, the father of all who believe, the son of the promise, the man whom God has blessed, the man whom in Genesis 12 God told would be a blessing to all the nations, encounters a believing Canaanite in the land, a real man living and worshiping God in the land of promise, in the land that God had promised to Abraham, who was there worshiping God, identified as a priest of God Most High before Abraham even got there. Beloved, listen as I read verses 1 and 2. We looked at this last week. Hebrews 7, verse 1 and 2, this is the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was, first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Four times we see the author refer to Melchizedek as a king in these two verses. He was king of righteousness and he was king of of, uh, peace. And also he was a priest of God most high. He was both king and priest. We come and meet the priest king Melchizedek here in Hebrews. Now a priest is an interceder. He's a interlocutor. He is a mediator standing between man and God and interceding between man and God. This is the very nature of the word priest, of the title priest, of the office of priest. And what we see even in verses 1 and 2 that as a priest of God most high, Abraham, excuse me, Melchizedek both gives 
and receives. He gives a blessing on behalf of God, and he receives a tithe on behalf of God. He is mediatorial. That is a characteristic of his ministry as priests, like all other priests. So the priesthood of Melchizedek is mediatorial. And it is also, we saw this last week, universal. He is introduced, was introduced back in Genesis 14 as a priest of God Most High. When Melchizedek spoke to Abraham in those short verses twice, he referenced God as God Most High, El Elyon. And as such, that is something the author is communicating to us, then rather than the limited national priesthood of the nation of Israel, which was right and appropriate by God for the nation of Israel, the priesthood of Melchizedek is a universal priesthood for all the peoples. To be sure, it encompasses a priesthood to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, and it encompasses all the nations, all the Gentiles. El Elyon, God Most High. This name, this name that is vaster even than the choice covenant name Yahweh of God is how he is described here because Melchizedek's priesthood, again, is for all the peoples. It is a universal priesthood, comprehensive and far greater than the national priesthood of the Levitical, Aaronic priesthood of the nation of Israel. And that is a brief reminder of where God took us last week in verses 1 through 2, or 1 and 2. Now, beloved, listen as I read verses 3 through 10, which is our text here this morning. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men, literally dying men, receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi who received tithes paid Ties, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we see in these latter eight verses is beyond the mediatorial aspect of the priesthood of Melchizedek and past the universal priesthood, also three superior qualities of the priesthood of Melchizedek is that his priesthood was singular, eternal, and cardinal. And all of this is building up, beloved. If we want kind of a purpose statement, kind of a so that statement for how we should approach and what we should expect to take from this passage, all of this is building up of the weight of the beginning doctrinal emphasis of the sermonic letter of the Hebrews up to chapter 10, verse 19, where, dearly beloved, you should have confidence by virtue of this ministry of Christ to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for you by going beyond the veil. 
And since, beloved, you have a great high priest over the house of God, draw near now with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Approach the throne of God aflame with glory, burning with the intensity of his holiness because you are draped in the holy fire-resistant righteousness of Christ. Come meet the priest king Melchizedek. The focus here in these verses is on the man Melchizedek, but of course it is pointing to the man, the God-man Jesus Christ. So the first superior quality we see of the priesthood of Melchizedek is it is singular. Melchizedek's priesthood is singularly unique. His Worth is not derived from his historical genealogy, but from his personal dignity. And what we see here at the beginning of verse 3 is that some silences of Scripture are pregnant with meaning. And as we transition from verse 2 to verse 3, we see the author of Hebrews assigns as much importance to what is not said in Genesis 14 as to what is said. Now, for those of you, those blessed, uh, those of you that will be taking Pastor David's uh, class on how to study the Bible, I'm sure sometime he'll talk about eisegesis and how we don't read things into the white page uh, spaces of Scripture. However, the author of Hebrews was superintended by the Holy Spirit, and in his case, he draws great meaning, again, from what was not said, as much as what was said. That's why he says in verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy. A pator, a mator, a genealogetos. No mother, no father, no genealogy man. He comes with no background, no heritage, no credentials. And what we need to understand is we need to understand, again, remember, the original congregation is called the book of Hebrews because these are Jewish believers. These are Hebrew it's a Hebrew congregation. Now, to the nation of Israel, for the Israelite, the priesthood was all about genealogy and nationality. And in fact, you could not be a priest of God if you were not of the tribe of Levi, and you could not even prove that you were of the tribe of Levi. For example, in the time of Ezra, there were a group of people that were coming up and saying, hey, we're of the priesthood of Levi. Help, you know, let us come. I'm here to serve. And the response was, show us your birth certificate, so to speak. In Ezra 2, verse 62, you'll read these words. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they couldn't be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. That is the word of God, that is the rule of God, that is under the requirement, the credential, the qualification, the sine qua non requirement to be part of the Levitical, Aaronic priesthood was to be able to prove the correct genealogy, the correct lineage. But now Melchizedek, this Gentile, this Canaanite who's not part of of the line of Father Abraham, coming out of nowhere with no credentials, this nowhere man, this no credential man. In verse 8 here in Hebrews 7, you'll see this. And what we do is we'll kind of jump between these verses here because in a very typical uh, Hebrew fashion, it's not spelled out linearly the way that in our Occidental way of thinking we might like it to be, but this is the Word of God. This is perfect. Verse 6 the one whose genealogy is not traced from them. Melchizedek genealogy was not traced 
from the sons of Levi that he had referenced back in verse 5. And what makes this even more staggering is in Genesis, in this book of Toledoth, this book of genealogies, Melchizedek is the only worshiper of the true God in the 50 chapters in our English version of Genesis. He is the only true worshiper of the true God in Genesis whose lineage is not delineated, whose ancestry and descendants aren't given. And so the application, the exposition, what the author is explaining here is that Melchizedek was not a priest because his father was a priest and he didn't have any successors. So his priesthood is singularly unique. It was 4,000 years ago at the time of Genesis 14. It was 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago at the time of David. It was 2,000 years ago at the time of the writing of Hebrew, and so also, beloved, it is singularly unique even today. And just by way of point, when it comes to priestly lineage, from a physical standpoint, Jesus also has no priestly credentials in the context of the Old Covenant because Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, verse 10, when the prophecy is given, when Jacob's prophecy is given to his children, and he says to Judah, the scepter won't depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and a hymn should be a capital H, him shall be the obedience of the people. So that is where in the prophecy over his sons, we learn that Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. So again, Jesus under the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood is not qualified with his lineage to be a priest of that order. So the superior quality, beloved, of the priesthood of Melchizedek is it is singularly unique. Secondly, his priesthood is eternally undying. His priesthood was universal, not national. It was singular, not general, and it is eternal, not temporal. And what the author tells us as we go with the rest of verse 3 and on through these verses is there is a priest who predates, pre-exists, and outlives the entire Levitical priesthood. Look at the middle of verse 3 having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, to the original Jewish congregation, they wouldn't understand this. I mean, how can you have a priesthood with no beginning and no end? In the nation of Israel, the priesthood lasted from age 29 to 50, or age 25 if you want to count kind of a four-year internship using the modern vernacular. But it is limited. So what is this idea of a priesthood where there's no beginning and no end? He continues, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, watch this, made like the Son of God. Made like. Let us pause here for a second. The word translated made like appears only here in the New Testament. It means a copy. And, in fact, when we see that Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a simile. Uh, simile is like as. Metaphor is a substitution. Simile is, you see the little word like or as. He's a simile. He's a facsimile. He is a facsimile. Melchizedek is the facsimile. Jesus is the reality. And 
1 through 10, while verses 1 through 10 here in Hebrews 7 is about the man Melchizedek, but what we note here is the argument is not that Jesus is like Melchizedek. The argument, the referent, is what it should be. Melchizedek is like, made like the Son of God. That is the point. And, beloved, Melchizedek, in all his greatness, is merely here to point to the one who is far greater, namely Jesus Christ. He is a type of Christ. Uh, Now, Sometimes some people may bristle a little bit or some people, others may get excited. Ooh, you know, typology. I I love types in Scripture. Beloved, just at a very high level, a very good, sound, safe, and secure way to approach this is if God calls someone or something a type and identifies it as such, then it's a type. If God doesn't, then we ought not either as well. So, for example, in Numbers 21, uh, the nation of Israel lifted up the bronze servant, bronze serpent. And when the believing portion of Israel would look upon the bronze servant, serpent, excuse me, in Numbers 21, they would be healed. And we know from the New Testament that that was a type in the same way, Jesus himself, in the same way that the serpent was lifted up on the tree, so also the Son of God, the man Jesus Christ, would be lifted up on the tree so that those who would look to Christ in faith would be not just physically healed as the nation was back in Numbers 21, but spiritually, eternally healed. Or you can think of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. The Passover lamb, of course, is identified as a type of Christ, whereby the wrath of God would pass over those who are under the protection of the lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. No, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Israel and the nations in the context of what we have here. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. And in the same way, Christ would be in the tomb. So there are types in Scripture. And Melchizedek is a type as such, beloved. Again, fitting into the main thrust of all of Hebrews. Melchizedek as great, amazing, this man, uh, this mighty man of mystery in this momentous occasion As great as he was, he is a shadow. The Son of God is the substance. He is the type, Christ. Jesus is the antitype. And by the way, just a quick word of application here. The phrase here, made like the Son of God, does drive a stake in the heart of the hypothesis. It's not a heretical hypothesis. It's a wrong one. But it drives a stake in the thinking that what we see and encounter in Genesis 14 is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. There's nothing whatsoever in Genesis 14 in and of itself that would point towards Melchizedek being a theophany. In fact, if you look at theophany, a Christophany, that is basically a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity in the Old Testament. In Genesis 18, for example, uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son, along with two angels, came and went up to Abraham. And there's other passages as well. Anywhere, any time that you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is referring to God himself, to a theophany, to an appearance of God, of Christ, the second member in the Old Testament. Point here is when you compare the true theophanies, the true pre-incarnate appearances 
of the second member of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And the record in Genesis 14, there's no comparison. There's no commonality. The, the whole chapter here in Hebrews, this whole section is all about the priestly qualification. It's not about the miraculous birth. And even the whole context of being a man without beginning or a priesthood without beginning, without end, of having no genealogy, you can think again back in Genesis chapter 5. So in Genesis chapter 5, you have one of the Toledoth, one of the books of the generations. And it's like a march through a cemetery. Eight times you'll see going from Adam to Noah, eight times, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's like walking through a cemetery. Death marches through Genesis 5 from Adam to Noah. Even in the glorious exception of the case of Enoch, we read of his end. It said, instead of saying, and he died of Enoch, it says, and he was not, for God took him. So, beloved, the point here is this man, Melchizedek, appears without genealogy and has neither beginning nor end in a very unique way. And by the way, for what it's worth in the context, and if you, believe, if you came here thinking that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, again, that's not a heretical, it's just a, it's a wrong understanding, but it's not heretical, there's nothing wrong with that. And for what it's worth, uh, not one pastor, not one commentator that I looked at and cited of the trustworthy one holds this position, uh, because it's just simply not there. But back in our passage, verse 3, you read these words. He says he abides a priest perpetually. He abides a priest perpetually, continuously, uninterrupted, literally stretching like a cloth out to its full length and its full limit. Uh, this word perpetually is a unique word. It only appears four times in the New Testament, all four here in Hebrews. And it's a unique word. It's a little different than the word eternal or eternally. It's translated in chapter 10, verse 1 of Hebrews as continually. And in chapter 10, verses 12 and 14, for all time. And the author uses this unique word rather than the normal word. For example, even when we think back in chapter 5, verse 6, when the author, after a thousand years from King David, picked up and mentioned Melchizedek for the first time, and he even quotes David's one verse in Psalm 110, Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There, when the reference was directly to the Son of God, he used the normal word eternal, forever. But here he uses this unique word, and I think probably the reason being is because what we're looking at here is the man Melchizedek. So there is a very real sense, clearly, that's what the text says here, that he has an eternal priesthood. But the man, Melchizedek, was born like any other man. He lived and he died like any other man. And that's probably why the author uses this unique word. Also in verse 8, jump forward a bit, we read, And in this case, mortal men, dying men, receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. Or look at verses 22 and 23, same chapter. And the reference here is not Melchizedek. In uh, verse 11 and forward, the author takes this treatment, this foundation he gave with the focus on the man Melchizedek and applies it, exposits it towards 
Jesus. In verses 22 and 23, speaking of Jesus, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because, why? They were prevented by death from continuing. That's a problem. These old Levitical Aaronic priests, they keep on dying. But Jesus is the one in permanent possession of his priesthood. And even in the context back here, in verses 1 through 10, Melchizedek is, in a sense, as a type, as a shadow of the antitype and the substance that would come, lives on forever and is in permanent possession of his priesthood. Now, what was the problem? Well, let me approach it this way. If you've been here for a while at Santana, I, might, I think I even ref- may have referenced this recently. I'm, I'm kind of a foodie. I, I like food. And I'll, I'll, I'll confess my shame. When I go to a restaurant, especially if it's a new restaurant or maybe I haven't won before, I'll look online and I'll do some reconnaissance on the menu. And I don't think there's any kind of literal uh, Pavlovian response where I literally salivate. I guess maybe I'm you know, mentally salivating to a certain degree. But imagine this, if I haven't already turned you off too much. Now imagine I were to go to the restaurant and I've got everything all picked out and they, and they bring this meal before me and I look at it and I say, you know what, can you just bring me back the menu? I, I just want to you know, look at the menu. Or to extend kind of a similar, imagine a man dying of starvation and he comes somewhere to a restaurant, and they bring food to this man dying of starvation. He says, no, thank you. I just want to go back and look at the menu. Beloved, the situation for the original audience of the Jewish believers is they were in danger, the deadly danger of drift. They were in deadly danger of going back to the shadow of the old covenant rather than fully grasping and realizing and clinging to the substance of the new covenant. And what the author is telling this group of battered, beaten down Jewish believers who've left everything for Christ is as wonderful, as incredible, as divinely inspired and divinely guided and ordained and orchestrated as the Levitical Aaronic priesthood was, the priesthood of Christ that you've come to is infinitely better. John MacArthur put it this way, quote, They'd been deprived of an earthly temple, but they were going to get a heavenly one. They'd been deprived of an earthly priesthood, but they had a heavenly priest. They'd been deprived of the pattern of sacrifices, but they have one final sacrifice, end quote. Beloved, in applying this in anticipation of even what the author will do, verse 11 and 4, Jesus doesn't wear out. He doesn't tire. He doesn't falter. He doesn't fail. He lives forever, abides forever, saves forever, and intercedes forever. Even right this very second, or as the author will say in verse 25 here in Hebrews 7, he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you if you're in Christ. If you're trusting Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. And if we pair the opening phrase of verse 1 with the closing phrase of verse 3, beloved, you get a very good picture of Melchizedek, who was introduced again in chapter 5, verse 6, after a thousand years of silence. Verse 1, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, end of verse 3, made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Beloved, this gives you a snapshot of the very heart 
of what is going on here in the heart and mind of the author and in the heart and mind of God, the mind of Christ. So, the priesthood of Melchizedek is universal. It is singular. It is eternal. And lastly, his priesthood is cardinal. Verses 4 through 10. This is the third, this morning, superior quality of his priesthood. It is singularly unique. It is eternally undying. And it is cardinally unsurpassed. Now, verses 4 through 10. Many words. One simple argument. And beloved, the intricacy of the argument, don't let the intricacy of the argument in verses 4 through 10 prevent us from grasping the clarity of the message. Namely, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And the short of it is, by the author showing that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, ergo, hence, he is showing Jesus is greater than the priests that were even at that time, as the author wrote this, in the temple. Verse 4, now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Patriarch, patriarches, the Greek word, we get the English word from the Greek word, father and beginning or first. It's a title of great respect. And this title, this majestic title of respect, patriarch, does not appear often in Scripture. In the New Testament, it appears only here, referring to Abraham. It appears in Acts 2.29, referring to David. And in Acts 7, verses 8 and 9, referring to the 12 sons of Jacob. But the point here is, from Hebrews and even from the other references, Abraham is the patriarch of patriarchs. He is that both idiomatically, just by virtue of our understanding, and even if we, we could say that he is the patriarch of patriarchs grammatically and historically because the other two patriarchs that are identified in Acts, David and the 12 sons of Jacob, they are descendants of Abraham. So he is not just the father of all who believe, but he is the patriarch of patriarchs. And then verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Literally, they have come out of the loins of Abraham. And, beloved, what the author is doing here is he's proving, especially to the Jewish mind, that Melchizedek is greater than these Levitical priests who had emerged down through the corridors of time. Again, even at the edict and ordination of God. And just a point here, I love how he brings in their brethren. Their brethren there in the middle of verse 5. So while they were the priests, they ministered and they received the tithes from their brethren. The point is, this is a reminder that those Levitical priests were not higher, greater spiritual being than the hoi polloi. They were equal. They are all on one foot. And just a point here, it's interesting, in Genesis 14, there's one component of this interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham that the author of Hebrews doesn't bring out, namely that Melchizedek brought bread and wine to Abraham. He brought bread and wine to Abraham and his men. There was a practical aspect. They had just won this mighty war with the four kings from the east. So there's a practical nature of the bread and wine. And there was a spiritual application that though Melchizedek was clearly the greater, 
They were equals, and they shared a fellowship meal. And very likely, the author doesn't bring that one out, is that while we are in the New Testament called, in a sense, brothers of Christ, we're joint heirs with Christ, the author maybe didn't want to take it to that quite of the same level of communal fellowship that Melchizedek shared with Abraham. But we know in Genesis 14, as I already mentioned before, Melchizedek both gives blessings on behalf of God and receives tithes on behalf of God as God's man on earth. And the author uses in these seven verses from 4 to 10 these points to bring out the superiority of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, gives on behalf of God. Now, Father Abraham, the father of all who believe, Jews, Christians, even Muslims exalt Abraham and recognize the greatness of Abraham. Abraham stands out on the pages of history. He is the father claimed, again, by Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Seemingly, in Genesis, the most blessed man on the planet. God plucked him as a brand out of the fire, out of his pagan background in Ur in Genesis chapter 12. God blessed Abraham. God gave promises and direct revelation to God. He was seemingly the most blessed man on the planet until you come to Genesis 14 verse 18 and meet Melchizedek. Verse 6, here in Hebrews 7, But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now, up to that encounter in Genesis 14, only God had been doing the blessing, been giving the blessing. This is, in Genesis 14, the first time that a man blesses another man because he's the first priest. He's God's man on earth. He is the mediator of God to man. And normally we would think Abraham who would be the one that would give the blessing, but no, it was Melchizedek. The greater blesses the lesser Abraham. That's why, look at verse 7, in case we missed it up to this point, Hebrews 7, 7, but without any dispute, no question, no argument, accepted without question, an axiomatic truth, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And this blessing, this was, this blessing of Melchizedek blessing Abraham was an official pronouncement by one that has been properly authorized, who was divinely appointed by God. And that's even an expression of God's approval. So Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, gives blessings on behalf of God, and he receives tithes on behalf of God. Remember, the scene back in Genesis 14, Abraham had defeated Kedorlaomer and the three uh, kings of the east and taken all their possessions. And then you would read in Genesis 14, 20, and he gave him a tenth of all. The plunder of the four kings of the east was not a small take. It was not a small offering. It was not a small tithe. And Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, accepted that voluntary gift from Abraham. Now, here, back in verses actually 2 through 10, seven times you see the word tithe or tenth. All, they're all cognate words. They all come from the same 
Ruth. Verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. Abraham gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Verse 4, the sons of Levi have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. Verse 6, collected a tenth from Abraham. 8, mortal men, dying men received tithes. Even Levi who received tithes paid tithes. Seven times. I mean, and by the way, the choicest spoils, uh, the choicest spoils there in verse 5 literally means the top of the heap. So when Abraham's herdsmen went through the cattle and the goat and the sheep and the wheat and the grain and the gold and the silver, they collected the choicest spoils, the top of the heap, the best of the best to give to them. Now, someone might think, Surely there's no greater passage in the New Testament to preach on tithing. It's interesting, tithing and tithes is very rare in the New Testament. It only appears here seven times in this verse. And it appears once in Matthew and twice in Luke, both of which it's being used in the context of the hypocritical pseudo-religion of the Pharisees. So, the only positive usage of tithe and tithing in the New Testament is here in Hebrews 7, and it appears seven times. So, okay, you guys ready for the, the uh, application to tithe? Well, sorry, that's not the point here, because nowhere in the New Testament is tithing, including here, used to encourage Christian giving. You won't find tithes used anywhere in the New Testament to encourage that. What we have in the New Testament under the New Covenant is something better than the tithe and the tithing of the Old Covenant. We have the sacrificial giving of the New Covenant. The point in Genesis 14, beloved, is not the quality. It's not the quantity. Now, the choicest spoils, the top of the heap, did give a word on the quality, but that was not the main point. The main point was not how much was given the tent. The main point in Genesis 14, the author brings out here, was to whom it was given. That was the point. That's why in verse 8, the author says, Hebrews 7, and in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And in this case, and by the way, the present tense grammar and language the author uses here and elsewhere lets us know that the book of Hebrews was written before A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. So the Levitical priesthood was still extant. It was still operational at that point in time. Verse 9, and so to speak through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And the point here, beloved, Abraham was in his 80s in Genesis 14. Isaac, his son Isaac, wasn't even born. Isaac wasn't even born. Jacob wasn't even born. Levi wasn't even born. The great-grandson of Abraham, Levi, wasn't even born. Yet he was in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What is he talking about here? We could say it this way. Levi's DNA was in Abraham when he met Melchizedek. We can think of it this way. Uh, how many of the 11 football players have to cross the boundary prematurely for the team to be penalized with an offside penalty? All 11? Uh, a majority six? No, one team member that jumps the gun, by virtue of that, the entire team is penalized. And that is what is taking place here. In the same way, 
1 Corinthians 15, 22, in terms of sin, for as in Adam all die. Or when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 5, 12, just as through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Beloved, this is federal headship. This is basically a representation of the one on behalf of the many. So what the author of Hebrews, and, and some of you may be saying, okay, you know, we're going to get into a deep theological, some of the more erudite theologians here, we're going to talk about federal headship, the heresy of the federal vision, etc. You know, sorry. <laughs> we're just going to take the text at face value. There are two Adams, the first Adam and the second Adam. The world we know isn't the world God made. It's the world which the first Adam has spoiled. But a second Adam has come to the fight to rescue. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. The author of Hebrews' point here is that because Levi was in the loins of Abraham, that when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek in a very real, tangible, and if you want the theological phrase, federal headship sense, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Therefore, main point, the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of the Levites and of Aaron. Beloved, Levi is the priest we deserve. Melchizedek is the priest we need. The story is told of an early convert, and in fact, in one account I read, he was supposed to be the first convert in Taiwan to Christianity. There was a Western missionary that was bringing the gospel to bear in Taiwan, and God saved this one man, and there was a crowd that had surged and was coming up and threatening them and going towards them, and they were, of course, not happy with the Western missionary, but their greatest hate, their greatest vile and venom was going towards this traitor and they were calling him back saying turn away from this false western belief system that you've embraced and come back to our idols and as the story goes the man the convert after time swallowed and steeled himself and said i can't worship idols that rats can destroy is how the story goes in verse 11 We'll finish by looking at verse 11 in anticipation of where God will take us in the weeks that come, or next week at least. Verse 11, now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. The point here is the order of Aaron. They didn't have the ability to bring about what the author there in verse 11 calls perfection, completeness, maturity. He's driving home the absolute reality and the absolute sufficiency sufficiency of the priestly work, work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, as we approach the communion table now in but a moment. That is what we remember. That is what we celebrate. That is what we do when we do this thing. Life is very short. Sin is very evil. Salvation is very needful and very beautiful. And if we are born of God, we will draw near to God. Jesus is the one we come to, and he's the one we come through. Let us do that now, even as we approach the table.
Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your standard of perfect righteousness. We thank you, Lord God, for providing a way of escape. We thank you, our Lord God, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth, being born as a baby, growing up as a child, being tempted, even as we are tempted, yet without sin. We praise you and thank you for your once-for-all perfect, spotless sacrifice that represented your spotless, sinless, perfect life of obedience. And thank you for giving us the gift of new life, of adopting us into your family. Thank you, Lord God, for your interceding ministry, even now at the right hand of God the Father. Help us to worship you even now behind the veil as we take of these elements in remembrance and celebration of the work you've done on our behalf. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we approach the table. Amen.